So um, normally what we do in this year is we'll look at Parshat Shavu unless a particular Chag is coming up. And um, and normally the week of Etchanan, we would look either at Aser they brought at Kriyat Shema. We've been done some halachic things like we've done a look at Hilchot Kriyat Shema. Uh, we've done things of that sort. Um, Parshat Ekev, we'll take a look at Berchad Amazon perhaps, but we usually stick to the parashah. This year, I want to do something different. And let's say this year, because it's going to last for, for the next seven weeks, I'd like to look at the Shiva de Nechemta, the seven Haftarot of Consolation, which are read uh, between Tisha B'Av and the Shabbat before leading up to Rosh Hashanah. Uh, just a couple words about it. And what we'll do is over the course of the seven weeks, we'll do both looking at the text, but looking at larger questions about the entire system of the Shiva de Nechemta, some of its uh, history, um, and uh, and why the sequence is what it is. One note about the Shiva Nechemta, these seven Haftarot, all seven Haftarot are taken from Sefer Yeshayahu, but they are not sequential. In other words, today, we're this week, we're going to read Parik Mem, then we're going to read from Parik Mem Tet, and then at a later point, it'll be from Nun Bet, but then it is going to go back and forth a little bit. Uh, and so the customs that developed about reading these Haftarot were, seemed to be geared on picking themes from this part of Yeshayahu that would fit a process of Nechama, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, what the ancillary piece that I'd like to speak about just at, as an introduction to the Shi'ur today is a problem that should not be a thorny problem, but it became a thorny problem. And that is the problem of authorship. So a quick overview. Yeshayahu Hanavi is somebody that we were introduced to back in Perak Aleph and chiefly in Perak Vav and a few of the other Prakim in the first 12 Prakim uh, with some biographical information about his children, his wife, we don't know her name, but you know he has a wife, he has children, and about his relationship to the kings. Um, the truth is that all the way through Perak Lamentet, there are historic and biographic notes both about him and people he interacted with. That stops here. The Yeshayahu that we meet in Perak Aleph is a Navi, a Navi who lives in Yerushalayim. He is a Navi who gives prophecy to Bnei Israel at a time in which the northern kingdom, after years of the looming threat of the Assyrian conquest, finally succumbed and the northern tribes were taken off and dispersed all through the Assyrian lands. And, uh, and there was a, an Assyrian threat to Judea that was miraculously thwarted. And it's a piece, by the way, that shows up both in Sefer Malachim, Perak Bet, Yudchet Yudet, and also shows up in Yeshayahu, almost, almost exact uh, parallel texts which are purely historic texts about Chizkiyahu and Rav Shakeh and Yishael plays a role in that, um, and how the threat of Sancheriv uh, is miraculously, God intervenes and is, and is thwarted and sent away. So we have that setting, and that setting informs most of the first, about 35 out of the 39, 36 out of the first 39 Prakim of Yishael, and then something, and by the way, in all those Prakim, Yishael's name is mentioned, Chizkiyahu's name is mentioned, we have people who are alive from that period who he's interacting with, including the enemy, by name. Suddenly, there is a tafnit, a turn that happens at the beginning of Perak Mem. We are not going to hear any more names. We're not going to hear the name Yeshayahu. We will hear some names, but not Yeshayahu. Um, and the theme, the tone, which was 
chiefly of rebuke and some hope, but chiefly about rebuke to Am Yisrael uh, and dealing with the threat of the Assyrians in different ways, suddenly shifts. And almost consistently from here to the end of the book, it is a message of consolation. That's why he named it, the divine consolation, that God is consoling his people. And he's saying that you, I'm making the way proper for you to come home. And the first uh, 14 or 15, 15 or so of these prakim focus really on, on God has forgiven us. The message is one of hope and of an embrace and a return and basically to come home. And we're going to see that right away. The next, uh, shall we say, 11 or 12, whatever it is that takes us to the end of the book, seem to be a little bit different in that the focus there is around the mikdash. Uh, and so the question is, well, what are we looking at? Are we looking at a book of 66 prakim, the biggest collection of the literary Nevi'im, um, and that for the part of his career, he was giving direct nevuah to the people in front of him about their deeds and their misdeeds and interaction with the king, etc. And then there's also a collection of his nevuot that are aimed at some future time uh, when the people will be exiled and not these people, but their descendants will be exiled and will be suffering and telling them that God has forgiven them and they can come back. Or conversely, are we looking at the prophecies of a later prophet that were then, for one reason or another, appended to Sefer Yeshayahu. So Sefer Yeshayahu is about a third bigger than it originally was, or half bigger than it originally was, and that it includes all of those nivuot. The truth is that there's no doctrinal issue at play here. There's nothing doctrinal that says that a Sefer of Tanakh has to be composed by one person, or has to be a single author to that. To it, matter of fact. When it comes to Sefer Shmuel, which is a real obvious example, Sefer Shmuel, Chazal say, was authored by Shmuel in the famous Breitah. And then the Gemara challenges, what are you talking about? Shmuel died before we got halfway through the book. And they do not suggest at any point that Shmuel wrote the whole book prophetically about what would happen when Shaul died and when David would take over and with Bathsheba, etc. They don't suggest that. They suggest that Sefer Shmuel was completed by other Nevi'im, which is based on a pasuk in Divrei Amim, at the very end of Divrei Amim Aleph, that the words of the story of David was written by Shmuel Haro'eh and God HaChoseh and Natan HaNavi. And so there are other authors that contributed to it. So there really, there's no doctrinal problem with looking at it. The reason it became a, a hot potato was more because of who said it than what was said. And because it came often from the, uh, the more... Um, I don't know, from the school of Maskilim or whatever it is in the 19th century. So it automatically became anathema and became a battleground. But bottom line, there really is no issue. And the perspective I'm going to take throughout this series is that these are nivuot from a later time. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that. Um, we look at nivuah as literature because we read nivim and we have to have a dictionary, and we have to have parshanim that'll help us make our way through the difficult phrasing and the poetry and everything else. That's our, our uh, challenge. Um, however, remember that Nivuah starts out as an oral presentation. Anavi stands up and presents to the people something that's either supposed to frighten them, threaten them, warn them, cajole them, console them, embrace them, and it's supposed to create a certain feeling which is about their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with Eretz Yisrael, with each other, with the poor, whatever it may be, and all those combined, that's their job. 
So if an Avi gets up and says, uh, as Yishayahu does in, let's say, Perak uh, Gimel, where he lays into the behavior of the women in Yishalayim, he's talking to them and saying, you know what's going to happen to all of your beauty? It's all going to get washed away. Right? Or when he, the beautiful Shirata Karam in, uh, in, in the first few Prakim, he describes God's relationship with Am Yisrael as a, as a vintner with his vineyard, and the vineyard that he's planted so so carefully is, is bringing up uh, um, sour grapes, etc. What should I do with my karam? Right? And so you, you have all, the, he's speaking to the people at the time. Why would he get up and speak in front of a people who are at least 100 years away from exile and speak to them words of consolation of return from that exile? Be difficult. And so um, that's part part one of it. Part two of it is that the that in particular passages in the end of Memdal, beginning of Memhe, he mentions a particular leader, a particular king by name, and that king is not Hizkiyahu, and that king is not Sanchiriv, that king is Koresh. And Koresh, of course, as we know, is the Median leader of the Median Persian coalition that overthrows Babel and then declares that the Jews, among others, Jews can come home and rebuild the Mikdash. Uh, and it's a surprising passage about Koresh there in Paragam. Hey, Koresh calls Koresh the Mashiach of Hashem. So we're going to take the position that this is familiar, although it won't Im- impact on how we learn it, except at the at the beginning here. So that's enough introduction. Um, there is reason to make the argument that this collection was put into Yeshayahu because of the immediate uh, prior piece that would have been the end of Sefer Yeshayahu. The very prior uh, piece that ends, the end of Perak Lamentet, the last few words of Lamentet, are when Chizkiyahu, again, back in, in the original Yeshayahu time, Chizkiyahu is, is sick and he's about to die Yeshayahu tells him he's going to die, and then he prays to Hashem, and Hashem extends his life by 15 years. And there is a miraculous sign that demonstrates that this is going to happen, and this sign is evidently experienced by Chachamim in Bavel. And Bavel at the time is not a power, but Bavel has and wants to have decent relations with Yehuda, and they send a delegation to visit Chizkiyahu, so to Bikucholim, and they come to Chizkiyahu, and uh, Chizkiyahu invites them in and shows them all of his riches and everything else, and Yeshayahu says, who were these people? And Chizkiyahu says to them, again, a biographic story about the Navi, Chizkiyahu says to them, they came from Babel, and then, and what did you show them? I showed them everything, and Yeshayahu says, the day will come when Babel is going to come and take all of your riches away. Everything you showed them is going to go to them. And Chizkiyahu's last words that we hear from him are, shalom good, as long as things are okay in my life. Now, I don't think anybody takes that phrase and smiles about it. I don't think anybody thinks that it's a noble thing to say or a positive thing to say for the king to say, all this terrible stuff will happen. As long as it happens after I'm dead, I don't care, which is what it sounds like. And so there are some Rishonim who connect these chapters of Nechama with that last phrase and and in and, and sort of a positive sense, in Shalom Vemet Yebiyamai, saying, oh, but Shalom Vemet will happen later on. I'd like to suggest the connection, but in the opposite direction. Shalom Vemet Yebiyamai is the extreme version of taking the short view, of saying, look, I got another 15 years to live. As long as ter- nothing terrible happens during these 15 years, I don't care. All I'm worried about is my life. And the whole 
notion of nechama here is taking the long view of saying Am Yisrael has suffered. And we're going to say this right at the beginning. Am Yisrael has suffered, and Am Yisrael has been loyal, and Am Yisrael has, has, shall we say, betrayed, but has come back, or is coming back, and therefore there's going to be a glorious future. It's going to be down the pike some point, some, at some point. And so it could be that these Pirkei Nechama are coming to present sort of the opposite view of something to think about. Okay, but let's take a look at the Prakim. One other last point is that there are two Prakim in pre- earlier than this, Lamed Hen, Lamed Vav, that seem to be from this later period also. And that's why some people will fade them that way. Could be, could be not. Okay, let's take a look at the beginning. Now, the beginning of this Haftarah is very well known. And remember, this Haftarah is the first of the of the Haftarot. It's such a famous Haftarah that the entire Shabbat gets its name based on it, Shabbat Nachamu. Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, Omar, Heloichem. Very famous opening songs. And by the way, because it's famous and because we have songs and tunes riding on our head with these words, we don't often pay attention to how difficult the words themselves are. And so let's sort of take a look at it. Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, Omar, Heloichem. What do those words mean? So what does nachamu, what, what's the root? The root is lenachem. Lenachem is to console. What is the tense of the word nachamu? Is it past tense, future tense? What is it? boy. It's a tzibu. It's a command. It's an imperative. Very good. And is it an, an imperative? Remember, when you talk imperative, you have four choices. Male, female, singular, plural. So what is this one? Nachamu, nachamu. Plural. It's plural male, right? Um, so, by the way, Dolby just asked a very good question on the chat. He asked, do people take the perspective that this other guy was some other guy named Yeshayahu? I don't think that that's even an important thing because his name doesn't show up anyway. Right? By the way, Yeshayahu Ben Amot seemed to have even signed his name into the Nebuot. Look at the small Fupsukim and Parakyad Yudbet, which is the end of the first section in Yeshayahu. It's, it's a very cool thing. Here, there's no names of any speakers. We don't know who's speaking. I'm going to comment on that towards the end of this year. So, Nachamu Nachamu Ami sounds like somebody is talking and saying to somebody, to some other group, you all should comfort my nation. So, the end of the Pasuk tells us what's going on. Meaning, your God has said, ye all, I'm going to borrow from Texas, ye all comfort my people. So, Who's talking? Who's, who's saying these words? So we assume it's a Navi standing up. We'll put him in Bavel saying, God has said, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. So who did God say it to? So if you want to assume that Nachamu means be comforted, it should be he Nachamu. Nachamu is the active of to comfort. So who did God say it to? So keep that in mind. We'll get back to it. But this plural imperative continues. Ye all speak to the heart of Yerushalayim, the people of Yerushalayim, and call to her, the city. This, by the way, picks up on Echa's theme of Yerushalayim, personifying Yerushalayim. Essentially saying, she has already fulfilled and have her sins Forgiven because she's just filled with the with the, the results of it. 
She's already taken double her sins in punishment. You know, she's already suffered way more than she deserved. So it's time to speak to her. Speak to her and say what? You understand that there's a message missing. There's a reason for the message. Ye all comfort Yerushalayim. Ye all speak to Yerushalayim. Ye all call to Yerushalayim. Because Yerushalayim has already suffered enough. We don't know what's going on. And now watch. Kol Korei Bamidbar. Now it's often read Kol Korei Bamidbar. People will often read it that way. But it's a mistake. The Tamim tell us it should be read Kol Korei. And their voice is calling. And what's the voice saying? Bamidbar, out in the desert. Panu derech Adonai. Meaning the voice is in, in the desert. The voice is calling here in, we'll call it Babel, and saying, out in the desert, open up a road for Hashem. Now, what does that mean? Hashem needs a road? What does that mean? So it's not a road for Hashem to be on. It's a road for Hashem's needs. Yashru ba'arava Straighten out a path in the plains, a, 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 a path for our God. What does that mean? So we'll keep going. And now we're hearing a description of miracles. Every valley will be raised up. And every mountain and hill will be lowered. In other words, miraculously, the natural obstacles to travel will be removed so that travel will be easy. Travel from where? So it seems travel from Bavel back to Israel. The crooked one will become straight, and the mountains will become a valley. Again, every, every obstacle that would keep you from traveling will be flattened out. And by the way, that will be miraculous. God's glory will be then revealed. They'll be revealed in this miraculous opening of a path for them to come back. And all manner of flesh is going to see that God has spoken. In other words, they're all going to see that this is God's doing. Everyone will recognize that, which is going to play a role in something that we see later. However, we haven't yet gotten to any nechama. Notice, nechamu, nechamu, amin. We're not hearing nechama yet. We're hearing something else going on, and we're not done with this, with this introduction. Kol Omer Kara. Now, before it was Kol Kore. Now it's Kol Omer Kara. A voice is saying Kara. Now, Kara is singular imperative. Ve'amar ma'ekra. And whoever's responding says, what should I announce? A voice is saying, announce. Good. What should I announce? Which means we've now shifted to God speaking to the individual. And saying, the individual is saying, what should I announce? And the answer is, Kol ha'basar chatsir v'chol chastol ketzitz ha'sadad. All manner of flesh is like grass. All of his kindness is like little buds that come up. Yavesh chatzir navel seats. The grass gets dry. It sounds like we're at a funeral. And the buds roll off. Why? Because God's spirit blows through them. God's wind blows through them, and they all fall off. Indeed, the whole nation is like that. They're a bunch of grass. Yavesh chatzir navel seats, which we just saw. But now, Udvar Elohim Yakum Leolam, that Vav Udvar is Vav Hanigud, meaning that the people are grass, their kindness is nothing, it all just withers away. But on the other hand, God's word lasts forever. Now we have to wonder what does this have to do with Nechama? And Nechama still hasn't happened. 
And we see that we're not yet out of the woods, meaning the introduction to the entire section is still cooking. What I'd like to suggest before going further about the shift from the Rabim to the Yachid is perhaps the following. The Navi, unnamed Navi, we'll never know his name, gets up in front of the group and says, God has spoken to a group of us and said, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, I want you to all comfort my people. I want you to all speak to the heart of the people. I want you to tell them you've suffered enough and now, um, and now um, you're you're forgiven, and now we can move move back. And then this particular Navi says, "Here's what I've got to announce. What I've got to announce is that there's a voice declaring that all the obstacles are going to be gone." And then the voice came to me and said, "I should call out." And here's what I'm supposed to call out, which is that God's kindness and God God is forever, and all the nations are nothing, and all the people are nothing, etc. I'm not done yet. I'd like to contend that this is what the individual, this Navi, says was the voice to him. Told him, and he gets personified as a woman here, interesting. Go up to a high mountain, the woman who gives glad tidings to Zion. Lift up your voice with power, you who give good news to Yerushalayim. Harimi al tirai, lift up your voice. Don't be afraid. Imri la go tell all of Arayuda hinei Eloichem. Now, what does that mean hinei Eloichem? It means that God somehow is being manifest. God's shechina is returning somehow to your shalim, to Zion, and let everybody know. And don't be afraid to say it. Shout it from the top, from the, from the tallest mountain. And now we're going to find out more details. And this is this individual's Navi, this individual Navi's part of the message. And I'd like to suggest maybe that what we're looking at in this collection of 27 Prakim is perhaps the contribution of a few Nevi'im from the school of Nevi'im in Babel and perhaps partially from the school of Nevi'im in Yerushalayim. And it's a collaboration which is not unusual when you think about Sefer Tehillim. And each one of them has a different message to give along the continuum of Bavel coming home, Yerushalayim rebuilding, etc. This is something to think about. And now, God is coming with strength. His right arm, his strength, is, is, is his power. He's got the reward with him. All of this, then, what does this mean? God's coming with his power. But we still haven't made the connection in this pasuk. This is the point where the connection gets made. He will lead like a shepherd leading its flock. Who's his flock? We're his flock. He'll take his arm and he'll collect all the little lambs. And in his arms, he'll carry the little ones, the ones that are still nursing. He'll lead them. God is picking us all up. He's going to bring us. Okay. Now, I'd like to contend that this is the introduction of the whole section. Not just our Haftarah, the whole section of Nechama, where the Navi gets up and says, God has spoken to a group of us. This is my contribution. The first step is that God is going to open up the path to come back, but that's not enough. 
The second piece of that puzzle is that God treats us like a shepherd to his flock. God takes ultimate responsibility for our well-being and will not let anybody left, be left behind. And the ones who are stragglers will pick up with his hands. Now, that's a very powerful message. And then you got to wonder about the rest of the Haftarah, which we'll look at relatively quickly. Who can, can measure in his open hand all of the water and plan out the heavens with a, with a, a measure and, and use a measure to plant all of the dirt of the earth and measure with a, an, a, a leveler? Mountains, and measure up mountains with a scale. In other words, what we're picturing here is God's creation of the world. Who could do such a thing? Who? If not God. Now, this, of course, is, to some extent, a polemic against idolatry. Who is it who established Ruach Hashem? How to read this? Meaning, does God share his plans with anybody else? Or more likely what it means is, who is it who gave God advice about how to do this? Who directed God how to create the world? The answer is, of course, nobody. Who did he take counsel with to explain him how to do things? And taught him how to do things right. And taught him all the ways of wisdom. Who do you think taught God that? Now, of course, within the, con within the context of, and many will argue that this is a response to Zoroastrianism, which was the dominant religion in Babel at the time. We, there's only one God. And God doesn't learn it from somebody else, and that God isn't under the thumb of anybody else. There's no question that this and the next few psukim are a very strong polemic against idolatry. And Minoats, uh, I'm sorry, indeed, all the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're like the like the dust that comes off of it, the little wearings that come off of a of a scale. And all the all of the islands, he just picks them up like nothing. A lot of discussion about what this pasuk may mean. One possible meaning is that if you were to take the Lebanon with all of its famous forests and you were to burn all that wood, it's still not even from fire for God. Take all of its animals, that's not enough of an Olaf for God. The point is that God is so supreme, so beyond, and the nations are all like nothing. Now, why is this helpful? Because when we roll back and say, God has taken a particular interest in us, and he's going to redeem us, and you look around and say, what are you talking about? We're nothing. Our city's been destroyed. We have it pretty good here in Bavel. Why should we leave? He said, you guys don't get the scale of this. We're talking about God. So watch how he continues. All the nations are like nothing. They're like, like, not, like nothingness compared to God. Because remember, we're living in a world in which there are powers. There was a big Assyrian power. And before that, we we're dealing with a big Arami power. Not as big. But the Assyrian power was huge. And then Babel overthrows them. And then the Persians and Medes overthrow them. And who are we? We're nothing. We're never a player in that. In the times of Aram, we were a bit of a player. But we haven't been a player in hundreds of years. The answer is, so what? 
all of this is nothing next to God. And God's taking an interest in you. Who could you compare God to? What image do you want to give to him? Again, a, 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 a polemic. Can you make him out of, out of molten metals? Hamsukan truma. Interesting discussion about what that may mean. It may be somebody who's actually an expert in truma. He'll take some wood that never never um, rots, and he'll choose that to make an image of God. He'll make something that'll never fall apart. It doesn't mean anything. Hello, Tedu, hello, Tishma, hello, who God, Mirosh Lachem. Look at the repetition of hello. Is it not the case? Remember, he's taking this, this thinking of Avodazar, we can make an image of God, and he's saying, What are you talking about? You know, you've heard, you knew this from the beginning. Hello, Havino, Tem, Mostel Tarts, you know how the world is created. Hayoshem, Achugarets, God sits there, Ke'ilu, with a, with a, a steering piece. Yoshvea, Kachagavim, and everybody lives on the world is like, like little locusts. God takes the heavens and stretches it out, stretches it out. He takes princes and turns them into nothing. This is the model, of course, of Kriyat Yamsu. He takes the leaders of land and turns them into nothing. Look at the Af here and compare it to the Alob. These, these were not planted. They weren't, they weren't um, seeded. They didn't take any roots, meaning all these people who think they're so powerful and everything else. God comes along, boom, they're gone. God just blows into them and they dry up like the grass. And a big wind comes and takes them away like straw. Now, this very, very powerful passage speaks to the hopelessness of putting your faith in man, but also the silliness of having your fear be of man when God has promised redemption. And so here we come to the end. Who do you want to compare me to? And now God is speaking. And now, look up at the heavens and see. Who do you think created all this? God takes them all out by number and he gives each one of them a name. In other words, the billions and billions of planets and stars and heavenly beings that exist, and God has each a name for each one of them, and each one he has a, a special relationship with. Why is that important? Because you could think, all right, as a people redeem us, but what's going to happen to me? The answer is God cares about you, the individual, and God's going to redeem you. And if he could take the star and move it out in, at night, as the way that we, they imagine, the way stars would move, and God would then identify each one by name. He knows your name too, and he's going to bring you out too. This is a powerful message of consolation because it's saying that the only one who can do anything about your current situation loves you and cares about you deeply, you as the individual and you as the group, and is, and is telling you that he's going to act. He's going to flatten out the mountains and raise the valleys so that you will have an easy way to come back. God's power. Meaning none of these are left out. None of the stars are left out. And none of you is left out. So we've seen over the course of the last half hour is first an introduction to the section of Yeshayahu, a, a proposal as to why it was placed right here after Paraklam and Tet and Yechizkiyahu's words, 
Alam Shalom Vemet Yabiyamai. And we looked at the first few psukim and asked the questions about who's speaking to whom and why is it in the plural. And I had the suggestion that this individual Navi, whoever it is in Babel, is speaking to, uh, I guess I am taking position, is speaking to the group and saying, God has spoken to us, the Guild of Naveen, the group of Naveen, whoever they are, and have told us we are supposed to comfort you. We've been told to speak to you because you've suffered enough. It's time to come back. And then he launches into his own message, which is God has decreed that he's going to bring you back. And God is going to be coming powerfully. And it's my job to get up and announce it powerfully without fear. And then he starts the first chapter of actual consolation. And I mean, chapter in the sense of the first unit of actual consolation, which is God has taken you as his flock. And God can do it all. And no one, nothing can get in his way. Nothing can even possibly imagine getting in his way. And therefore, when all of God's creatures are things that God identifies by name and is concerned with, and he's put his heart towards you, then you have every reason to believe and take consolation in that and know that you're going to be brought home. This is where consolation starts.